Our reading is Luke chapter 23. Uh, we're carrying on our studies in Luke's gospel and verses 44 to 56. 44 to 56. God's word reads, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who'd followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. I want us this morning just to look uh, briefly at, at three things from the passage that we read. Number one, the darkness that covered the land. Number two, the veil that was ripped from top to bottom. Uh, and number three, the final words of Jesus as Luke records them for us. So, firstly then, number one, the darkness over the whole land. First thing we need to note, I think, is that um, this was uh, an actual event, but it was a supernatural event, not a natural one. Whatever is meant by the whole land, the, the expression, if you look at it in scripture, is used in different ways. Uh, at the very least, it means that Jerusalem and the surrounding environs were covered in darkness. It, it wasn't an eclipse. We can be absolutely certain of that for two reasons. One, eclipses, the most spectacular of eclipses, last only a matter of minutes. This darkness lasted for three hours. Uh, and secondly, it was Passover. Uh, and Passover always takes place during the full moon and eclipses are impossible during a full moon. So it's an actual event, but it's a supernatural event. But, but it is also a symbolic event. It's a symbol that is rooted in history. I think one of the, the most chilling verses in Scripture uh, is to be found in Exodus chapter 10 uh, and verse 21. And this is 
part, I'm certain, of the, the background um, to this darkness that covered the whole land as Jesus was dying. Uh, and it takes place during the the plagues, the end of the series of plagues, which culminated in the Passover uh, and culminated in the deliverance of God's people from the bondage in Egypt. Uh, and God says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. It's Exodus ten twenty one, a darkness to be felt. Uh, and this again is uh, Passover. Uh, and again, this is a chilling darkness that they could almost tangibly feel. Secondly, it's a symbol that's rooted in prophecy. Amos, speaking of the day of the Lord, um, says, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Uh, and Isaiah prophesies that darkness will cover the whole earth, the thick darkness, the peop thick darkness, the peoples. But, but then adds, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Uh, and that uh, Isaiah 60 verse 2, you can take as both a prophecy of, of the crucifixion, the thick darkness, and also of the resurrection, the glory, because the Lord is risen. Uh, and again, one last example of this, Zephaniah uh, chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and of gloom. There is a sense in which this is the, the day of God's judgment being poured out, not, not on the whole of humanity at this moment, but upon the chosen substitute, uh, upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and this darkness foreshadows the, the day of God's wrath. But at this moment, that wrath is being poured out solely, exclusively upon the person of Jesus himself. It's a symbol that, that's rooted in his own teaching. Just remember some of the things that Luke has told us. Um, in Luke one we we're told that Jesus comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. His death is to deliver us from death. The darkness that is experienced on that day was that we might live in perpetual light. It's included as warning in Luke 11. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And most tellingly of all, I think, is what Jesus says in chapter 22 and verse 53. He turns to his accusers and says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But then he adds, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. What, what could be more fitting when the, the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, 
comes to, to challenge that there should be darkness to mark it. It's one of those anomalous things, isn't it? In, in some ways, this is the darkest day in all human history. This is the, the greatest sin that is ever committed, that, that God should come amongst his own people, that, that he should be amongst us. He comes to his own, John says, but his own did not receive him. It's a dark day. But strangely, and I confess this used to confuse me uh, as a child when I, when I, before I became a Christian, uh, and even for a while afterwards, why do we call it Good Friday? Surely it's Bad Friday. Surely it's Catastrophic Friday, Evil Friday, anything but Good Friday. But it's because we've embraced what is actually happening on that cross. Jesus is bearing your sins and my sins in his own body. He is experiencing hell for us that we might never taste it. He is swallowing death whole so that it will not swallow us. There's darkness over the face of the earth. But secondly, something again supernatural takes place. And this is our second point. The curtain is torn in two. The curtain is torn in two. What curtain? Well, it, it's the, the curtain within the, the temple, the curtain that, cel that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, uh, as it's, it's often called. Uh, it's referred to in, in Exodus chapter 26. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. This was the place where the presence of God was believed by his people to dwell. It, it was a place inaccessible to all. All of the, the, the temple geography if you, if you, or architecture, whichever you want to call it, it is all about separation. We'll... we'll come to that in a moment. It's all about separation, but the ultimate final separation was the veil. Inside the veil was the holiest place of all. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That was the place where the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go carrying the blood uh, and he would splash the blood onto the the, the lid of the, the Ark of the Covenant uh, onto the, the, that space there that was always being looked at by the cherubim, the guardians of God's holiness. Uh, and the blood w would cover that mercy seat because beneath it, uh, and this was what the, the cherubim were looking at, were the broken tablets of the law of God. Uh, and it, it's an incredibly symbolic thing. There's the Ark of the Covenant containing the evidence and the proof of man's disobedience, the, the commandments, the summary of the commandments that human beings have utterly failed to keep. Uh, and they gaze at these continuously. But then blood covers uh, and these guardians of holiness cannot see through the blood. All they can see is the blood. They cannot see any longer 
the broken law of God. It's part of a whole series of things that are saying one thing and one thing only. You cannot, you dare not come near this God. It was there in the Garden of Eden. When man sins, God places an angel with a fiery sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden. They can no longer walk with God in the cool of the day. Not only do they hide themselves from the presence of God, God casts them out of his presence. And from this moment on, there is fear inevitably linked with the presence of God. So every time in scripture you find somebody even meeting an angel, never mind meeting God, when they meet an angel, their their immediate reaction is, that's me finished, I'm dead. I cannot be in the presence of this God. They, They rightly understand it as having the same effect that you and I would have if we grabbed hold of an electric pylon. We would be immediately destroyed. The holiness of God would consume us. And so when the law is given on Mount Sinai, they're told, do not come near. Don't even let the animals touch the foothills of Mount Sinai. Moses alone, protected by God, can come. Uh, And even when he returns, his face so shines with the reflection. He's like the moon to God's sun. Uh, and when we gaze on the moon, we we can do so, can't we? Um, you can look straight up at the moon. It doesn't damage your eyesight at all. You don't do that with the sun. It's not a sensible thing to do. You cannot look on God and live. Uh, and the children of Israel found they couldn't even look on the face of Moses, the moon, and live. So holy is our God. Uh, and so... When they begin to worship him, firstly, there's the tabernacle uh, and it's all the Gentiles can only go so far. The women can only go so far. The the men can only go so far. The priests can only go so far. And right in the center of it all, the holiest of holies, the holy, the most holy place. And there only the high priest, only on the day of atonement and only after he has been cleansed and the sacrifices have been made. When Jesus dies on the cross, God takes hold of that veil and rips it in two. It was, it's not like your domestic curtain. Have a, have a dig through the, um, the pages in, in, in the Old Testament that deal with, you'll see this is a heavy, solid thing. No human being could rip it. But God rips it and symbolically he rips it from the top to the bottom. What's being symbolized? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? And the writer to the Hebrews, in case we um, are a little slow at understanding the obvious, the, the, the Holy Spirit uses the writer of the Hebrews to spell it out for us. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is the veil, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Everything has changed. At the moment Jesus dies, what began with man's disobedience in Eden and the placing of an angel with a flaming sword and has continued through all human history is now redundant. That's why there is no longer any temple. There's no need for one. That there would be no purpose in animal sacrifices. That there would be no purpose in a holy of holies. What awaits the people of God is that they will be within the veil. In the unbelievably wonderful, glorious presence of Almighty God. And they will not perish. There's one little side thing that Luke tells us, and I love this. It's so easy to, to pass over. Luke, sorry, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, Luke's second volume. Acts 6 verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And here comes the unexpected phrase. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What day was it when that veil was ripped in two? It was the day of preparation. The priests were there in all their splendour in the temple. There would have been division after division there. This was the busiest day in the temple. And there they would have been, inside the holy place, ministering to the Lord, separated mercifully, they would think, from the most holy place by the veil. And they were there when that veil was ripped in two and they lived. They didn't die. They must have gone home that day thinking, what has happened? And none of them would have been unaware that this took place at the very moment that Jesus offered up his life on the cross. They saw, they lived, and they believed. It's a glorious theme, isn't it, in our hymnology. Two hymns, one a modern one, or this is a chorus, really, um, by Mavis Ford. I stand before the presence of the Lord God of hosts, a child of my Father and an heir of his grace. For Jesus paid the debt for me, the veil was torn in two, and the Holy of Holies has become my dwelling place. And an author that died about well, over 200 years ago, um, Horatius Bonner, the sacrifice is o'er, the veil is rent in twain, the mercy seat is red with blood of victims slain. Why stand ye then without in fear? The blood divine invites us near. There's darkness, judgment, the veil is ripped in two, access. Thirdly, Father, into your hands. This is the, the last words as Luke records them. Each of the gospel writers has their own agenda in writing. They're, they're aware that um, sometimes there are other gospels that have been written or um, they uh, 
probably were aware that others were going to write a gospel. Uh, and so they, they each target different groups of people, and so they, they each record slightly different things. Um, Matthew has two things as his last words. He has the cry that we call the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, followed by Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark has almost identical wording. John, something quite different. Um, in verse 28, he tells us, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now f was finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Uh, and then two verses on, he said, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Finished there, not just meaning ended, um, but meaning completed, accomplished, fulfilled. So what does Luke record He's not saying these are the last words. None of them are. They're saying this is the last words I'm recording. And this is what Luke records. Verse 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I believe Luke is doing this for a very specific purpose. His purpose is that... He is planning a two-volume book. The first that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, and the second, what we call the book of Acts, all the things that Jesus continued to do and teach by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Uh, and so he kind of wants almost to have a cliffhanger for us at this moment. What is going to be? The final verdict of God. There's a, a plaque above the cross which says the king of the Jews. The centurion speaks his verdict. Innocent. Which is a word, it's a judicial word. He's saying Pilate was right. This man had done nothing wrong. Uh, and Scripture is using it in the way that it does in the Old Testament as a summary of the life of Jesus. It's telling us through the words of this Gentile, Jesus is innocent. In other words, he has done nothing deserving of death, not only in the eyes of Pilate, not only in the eyes of Rome, but in the eyes of Almighty God. King of the Jews, remember me when you come into your kingdom, the thief? Innocent, says the centurion. What will God say? We know what God has said. At Jesus' baptism, he sums up the first 30 years of the life of Jesus, what we would now call Jesus uh, as the baby, the toddler, the child, the teenager, the young man. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased, says the Father in Luke 3, 22. Matthew adds that, that later on, Matthew 17, the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But more has gone on, hasn't it, since then? Jesus has now faced the, the renewed vigour of, of Satan's temptations in the garden. 
he's prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's been tried in a way that he has never been tried before. Judas has betrayed him cruelly and viciously. His beloved Peter, the rock, has become shifting sand and denied, cursed and denied that he even knew him. He's been tortured. He's been mocked. He's been scourged. He's been crucified. He's been mocked as he's being crucified. He's endured more than anyone can imagine. He's even endured the wrath of his heavenly father. And for the only time he has cried out, calling God, God, not father. How has he stood up to all of this? Has he at the last fence fallen? You'll know that I'm no aficionado of, of horse racing in any shape or form, but um, uh, you, you, you don't, if you're, if you're in a, a jumping race, you know, and over the, the, the kind of hedges sort of race, the Grand National or something, um, horses fall at fences. Uh, and this is the last fence, isn't it, for Jesus? This is his final testing. And the question is, is he truly, fully, completely the lamb without blemish? Is John right? At the beginning of his ministry, John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But later on, when John is imprisoned uh, and his execution is, is imminent, he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you really who I thought you were? Well, here's the test. Father, I commit myself into your hands. It's your judgment that matters. I came into the world to do your will. In the volume of the book it was written of me, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. Have I done it? Has my life been spotlessly pure? Have I overcome these final dreadful temptations? Have I fulfilled your expectation? Have I absorbed all the suffering of sinful humanity of my elect people? Have I borne all of their transgressions and all of their guilt? Well, it will all hinge, won't it? on whether the final symbol of Christianity is a man nailed to a cross. It always seems to me to be such an inappropriate symbol. If that's where it ends, then it is the tragedy that the disciples on the road to Emmaus thought it was. Then we would be gathering on a Sunday to say we had hoped, but. But is that what's going to happen? Well, you've heard me say this before. Bear with me when I say it one more time. It's an agony to speak during crucifixion. And very often anyway, 
Jewish people were used to the fact that a quotation from a psalm was intended to be an indicator of the psalm itself. It was a kind of shorthand, a way of speaking. Um, it's becoming a, a, a phrase now, isn't it, that, that we, we seem to be dropping out um, particularly pronouns, or at least some people are. Uh, and so you'll get people saying, oh, are you going to come with? As if it's too much effort to say, are you going to come with me? Or are you going to come with us? It's, are you going to come with? Well, that's a fashion of speech. It'll probably go again um, like others. But but it was quite common, rather than, than quoting the whole of, of Psalm 22, to quote the beginning of it, knowing that your fellow listeners would understand the rest of it. The, the cry of dereliction is Psalm 22. But that cry goes on to say, let me just pick out some highlights. I'm not going to read it all. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. From you comes my praise. Remember and turn, O Lord. All the ends of the earth shall, sorry, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people that he has done. For a people yet unborn, what he has done. Jesus, in quoting the psalm, is not just saying, my God, my God, why is this happening? He knows why it's happening. He's pointing to verse 31. They shall come and proclaim God's righteousness to a people yet unborn. Why? Because Jesus is confident that he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so Luke leaves us on Good Friday with a cliffhanger. Will God raise Jesus from the dead as Jesus said he would? Will Jesus fulfil the most difficult promise he ever made and not only die but rise again? Because if he does, then can we not believe him for everything? Can we not believe that he who conquered death, he who rose by the power of an indestructible life, will also raise you and me from the grave and will also one day present us faultless before his father's throne with glory. I believe that. And if you're a Christian today, you believe that too. And if we believe it, let's go into all the world, not with a dead Jesus on a cross as our symbol, but with an empty tomb and a risen, ascended, glorified Saviour who's poured out his Holy Spirit as our strength and our hope and our empowering to preach Christ crucified, Christ risen and Christ coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a dark day, but what a glorious day. Darkness may have covered the earth, but the veil was ripped in two. Our Saviour may have died, saying, I commit myself into your hands. But we know, and we glory in the knowledge, that early, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb and found that the stone was rolled away and he was risen. He was risen 
indeed. Father, thank you. Thank you. Not just for the cross, but for the empty tomb and the anticipated sound of a trumpet and the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.